0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Second Samuel chapter four. Second Samuel chapter four. You know we had an awesome uh, parenting conference this past. Weekend, and, and one of the things that uh, I think that as parents we have to develop over time uh, is this thing uh, that I've, I've heard referred to as, as the big deal-o-meter. Right? The big deal-o-meter. We need to know because our kids go through a lot of things in their life. Right? Our kids have a lot of different experiences, a lot of different ups and downs and different trials that, that they face. And we need to know, all right, is this thing that they've just gone through, is this a big deal or, or is this not a big deal? And we don't want to ignore something, right, that is a big deal, that we probably should pause and have a conversation about. But on the other hand, we also don't want to treat everything that our kids go through like it's a four-fire alarm, right, that we need to, that we need to stop and, and, and really deal with. So, so we need to have this big deal-o-meter. Where, where, do, where does this thing register on the big deal meter You know, when we read the Word of God, I think we also need to have a big deal-o-meter that is functioning, because you might read or hear a story like this, the one that we just heard read for us, and you might think after you hear it, well, I mean, what's the big deal? Right? I mean, there was these two guys, and they killed this other guy-ish something, right? And then uh, David kills that guy, and it's all kind of gory, and then some people come, and they make David the king, but there's only like one line given to that, and so that obviously can't be that big of a deal, and, and we just kind of move on, but this is a huge deal, when we hear this story in God's word, our big deal-o-meter should be going off. The alarms should be sounding, because in the storyline of the Bible, when this little shepherd boy turned giant slayer becomes king over all Israel, this is a huge, huge deal, and it happens in the story that is before us today. And the reason why it is such a big deal is that as we will see today, it wasn't just about David becoming king. Ultimately, it was about another king, this one that the Bible calls the son of David, the one we know best as Jesus of Nazareth. And so because of what happened this day in this king's life, and because of how much that means uh, for the king's life, This has everything to do with your life and everything to do with my life. Hopefully we'll see that as we uh, talk about this story together today. And so as we go along today, I want us to, to discover together three ways that God establishes the reign of his king. And all three of these ways that we're going to look at are true. They are true in the story of King David that is before us. But more importantly, all three of these things are also true when it comes to the way that God has established the reign of King Jesus. And so first off, the first thing we see is that God will give his king the throne. Now that's really what chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 is all about. This is the story Of how God gives the throne of all Israel to his anointed one, the one that he chose, the man after his own heart, David. Now, for those who are maybe just joining us today, Uh, or maybe you've missed a week or two in this series, Uh, let's just remember where we are at this moment in time. King Saul is now dead, and presumably this has kind of cleared the way for David to become the next king. But at this point in time, it's only the tribe of Judah, David's own tribe, that has anointed him king over them. But the rest of Israel was at this time ruled by somebody else. There was this guy named Abner who went and took this other guy, the only surviving son of King Saul, Ishbosheth. And Abner lifts up Ishbosheth so that he becomes king over the rest of Israel. So right now, you have David reigning over the tribe of Judah, you have Ishbosheth reigning over the 11 other tribes. But last time, we saw that Abner, who was really kind of the power behind the throne, was killed. And so he's not around anymore to kind of prop up this puppet king Ishbosheth. And so now the writing is on the proverbial wall for Ishbosheth. And you see that in verse 1. It's, it's why it says that when Ishbosheth heard that Abner was dead, it says that he lost heart. The Hebrew there literally says his hands dropped to his side. That he lost all courage. He lost all strength. He knew that he was in trouble. And it wasn't just Ishbosheth that knew he was in trouble. Uh, verse 1 says that all Israel was troubled. All Israel knew, uh oh, with Abner gone, we are in trouble. So that's kind of the background. That's the overall feeling of what's going on in Ishbosheth's kingdom at this point in time. But as often happens, a couple of people uh, weren't just dissatisfied. They, they weren't just content to tell the pollsters that they thought the country was on the wrong track. A couple of guys wanted to actually take the king out. And verses 2 and 3 tell us the assassin's name, Bana and Rechab. Lovely names to be sure. And I won't go into all the details here, but uh, but the storyteller wants us to know that these two guys were not uh, King David's friends. They were not a part of King David's tribe of Judah. Actually, they were Benjamites. They were they were from the same tribe as King Saul, from the same tribe as Ishbosheth. So these were his own men that took him out. People that he probably thought were his loyal supporters. After a note about Jonathan's son Mephibosheth, there in verse 4. And we'll talk more about him when we see him again in chapter 9. And verse 5 begins to tell us the story about how these two guys killed the king. And we read that it was about noon that Ishbosheth was lying down on his bed, apparently taking a, a little midday siesta. And the two killers, Pretending to come into the house to get a bag of wheat, just walked right into his house and right into his bedroom. It's kind of amazing how little security this king had in his house. He didn't have any uh, guard dogs, he didn't have ADT, home security, he had nothing. They just walked right in, right up to his bed where he's lying down, presumably asleep, and they stab him in the stomach. And by the way, this is now three different guys who have been stabbed in the stomach in the last... Three chapters I don't know what that means other than I guess watch your stomachs right it's a, it's a jungle out there right and so but verse six says they stab him, they kill him then they cut off his head and they sneak out of the house with with head in hand so to speak, and then they run all night long to Hebron to get to David they have this gruesome present they want to present to him thinking that he will like that because his enemy is out of the way but also they have a little speech prepared and listen to what they say to him in verse Eight of chapter four. They said, "Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul your enemy, who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day of Saul and his descendants. I think the part I love the most is that little bit at the end where they try to get all spiritual with David. right? They say, David, listen, the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day of your enemy. In other words, they were saying, this this is God's work, David, that we have done. It was almost like we were the sword in God's hand to carry uh, this execution out. They, They were baptizing what they had done as if it pleased God when it did not. And one person put it like this, they came with blood on their hands, but theology on their lips, thinking that the latter would cleanse the former. You know, I'm afraid that many times we do basically the same thing. That we do things in our life that are blatantly wrong, that we know deep down are wrong, but we try to, I don't know, to use spiritual language to try to make it sound better to other people, or maybe even to rationalize it to ourselves. Along the way today, we're going to mainly focus on how God was establishing David's throne and we'll establish King Jesus' throne. But also along the way, I want us to see a few life lessons that just kind of arise out of this story. And and this is the first one. Just like these two guys here and what they say to David, we should never underestimate our ability to wash away our wrongs with churchy words. I'm afraid we are far better at doing that than we would like to admit. I mean, a lot of times, you know, we will, we will spend like 10 minutes like totally bashing someone to one of our friends, and then at the end we'll say, you know, the Lord just has put it on my heart to, to share this with you, you know, so you can, so you can lift them up in prayer. And we and we think that by adding that little sentence at the end that it kind of makes up for what we've just spent the last two ten minutes doing, even though we know that it's patently against the word of God. Sometimes we'll work like 85 hours a week and we know that our life is totally out of balance. We have no Sabbath rest at all. Our work life balance is totally out of proportion. But but then we'll we'll say something like, Well, I'm just working hard, you know, I'm just pouring myself out for the Lord and and, and for my family. And then we'll even quote scripture. We'll say, you know, because my life is like a vapor. It's like a mist. It's only here for a little while. I have to make the days count because the days are evil. I'm, I'm telling you, we are all very, very good at this. We have an uncanny ability to dress up our sins in flowery spiritual language to make them acceptable. But God sees right through all of our spiritual ease. And his Holy Spirit continues to press his finger upon our conscience to convict us, to tell us what we're doing is not right, that he has a better way for us. Well, God sees through our churchy words. David sees through the words of these two assassins as well. And so in verse 9, he says to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. I love that he starts out that way. First of all, that was just true. God had redeemed David's life out of a lot of adversity that we've already studied as we've walked through 1st and 2nd Samuel together. But I think also the reason why David says that, "The Lord has redeemed my life out of all adversity," is because he was kind of saying to these guys, "And so I don't need you." I don't need two evil men who are running around doing evil things to rescue me or to save me because God is doing a good job of that on his own. And then he shares with these two guys a story Which this story is probably reminding you of that took place back in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel where a different guy came running up to King David saying that he was the one who had killed King Saul thinking that David was going to give him some big reward. Apparently these guys were sick the day that history lesson was taught in uh, history class. Because they also thought David was going to give them a big reward for what they had done to Ishbosheth, And, and so he says to them in verse 10, Look, uh, someone told me saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news. I arrested him. I had him executed in Ziglag, the one who thought I was going to give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore shall I not now require your, uh, his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. And when he calls Ishbosheth a righteous person here, he just means that he had not done anything deserving of this kind of death. These guys killed him in cold blood while he was sleeping in his bedroom. And David says, how can I not wipe you off the earth after you have done something as wicked as that? He calls for one of his young men, and they are executed. And then their hands and feet are cut off. Their bodies are hung on display. And I think David did this for a few reasons. I think, one, he wanted to send out a warning to anyone else who would do something as wicked as this. But also, I think David wanted it to be clear, again, that he had nothing to do with the death of Ish-bosheth. This is one of the main things the narrator wants us to know in this whole section of this book. Yes, a lot of sketchy, shady things go down in these chapters in God's Word, but David is not behind any of it. David is not seeking to grasp the throne before the right time. He is submitting his life to God. He is waiting, patiently waiting for the Lord to lift him up in the perfect time, and to fulfill his promise to him. And in chapter 5, that perfect time was now. Because in verse 1, it says that the leaders from all 12 tribes of Israel now come to David in Hebron, and they tell him that they wanted him to be their king. And we don't know how long the events of chapter 5 follow after the events of chapter But eventually they realize that David should be their king. And and they give him three reasons why he should be their king. First, in verse 1, they say, you are our bone and our flesh. In other words, you're our fellow Israelite. And, And then they say, you should be our king because you have been our deliverer in battle. You've been fighting our battles all the way back to when Saul was king. You were our warrior then, and you're still our warrior now. And then number three, really this was the only reason that mattered, They said to him, the Lord has said to you, you shall deliver my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. And this just shows that they were aware. They knew that David was supposed to be their shepherd king, that he was the one that God had put his hand upon. And so in verse 3, it says that David and the elders of Israel make a covenant together. They anoint him king. This was now the third time, by the way, that David had been anointed. He was anointed the first time by the prophet Samuel, way back in 1 Samuel 16. He was anointed a second time by Judah to be the king over his own tribe. Now this is the third time that he has been anointed, but this time it's over all of Israel. In verses 4 and 5, it gives us a summary of his reign. He was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years until he was 70. The first seven and a half years of that reign was over the tribe of Judah. The rest was over all Israel. But again, that line at the end of verse 3, when it says, And they anointed David king over Israel. Our big deal-o-meter has to be going This is a big deal because God's anointed one, and that's who David was. And remember, the, the word anointed one is the word Messiah, the word Christ. And David was the Messiah of his people in his day with a lowercase m. And so when we read about David and we read about this Messiah, this Christ becoming king, we need to remember that all along the way in God's sovereign plan, there was a greater Messiah, a greater Christ who was going to come and was going to sit down on the throne of David. And so when we read about David, we cannot do so without looking forward to his far greater descendant who would come and reign on the throne. And so here is the truth we need to see today. God's promised to his king will come to pass even though they are opposed think about all of the opposition that there was to David becoming the king starting with Goliath and the Philistines and king Saul and his army and Abner and ish and all the rest even the sinful decisions of some of his own men that stood in his way and yet even though he faced a lot of opposition in the end it did not matter he became king anyway and it happened right here because God had made him a promise. And likewise, God has promised that his son Jesus will reign as king forever and ever. So it does not matter what opposition he faces. It does not matter what opposition he faced in his earthly ministry. His kingdom would begin like a mustard seed and grow all over the world. It does not matter what opposition he faces right now. How many people stand against him? How many kings will rise up against him and stand in his way? How many people resist his rule and his reign in their hearts and in their life? In the end, Jesus will reign anyway because God has made a promise. If you will, I want you to keep your finger there in 2 Samuel 5, but I want you to turn over with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I referenced this psalm last week, but, but really in a sense this psalm, Psalm 2, which most believe was written by King David, is, is almost like a commentary on this story that we're reading in 2 Samuel. And So we're going to keep going back to Psalm 2 through the rest of our time together and just looking at it. And so in Psalm 2, in the first few verses, it says, Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now that was David, but ultimately that's Jesus. Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So even though kings rose up against David, kings like Herod and, and Pilate, even though world leaders will rise up against Jesus today, even though people are trying to do all they can to erase the name of Jesus from the public square, even though people are saying like this, let us break their bonds in pieces. We don't want this Jesus to rule and reign over us. What does God say? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Just as it was with David, so it is with King Jesus. It does not matter what opposition he faces. God's anointed one will reign. God will give him the throne. But secondly, God will give his king the city. And we find that story about how David took the city of Jerusalem and made it his new capital, starting in verse 6 of chapter 5. Look at that with me. It says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in a stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. So David went on and became great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So David grew up just a few miles from Jerusalem in Bethlehem, and he knew very well that the Jebusites who were Canaanites still controlled the city because even back in Joshua's day they were not able to drive the Jebusites out of the city of Jerusalem. I think David always had his eye on taking Jerusalem and finishing the job that God had given to Joshua when they took the land. And and, and I remember and maybe you do as well that the day that David defeated the giant Goliath and took Goliath's head He put it in a FedEx box and shipped it to a certain place. And the place that he shipped it to was the city of Jerusalem. And that seemed kind of odd at the time, but I think David wanted the Jebusites in Jerusalem to have a little sign, a little token that there was still a God in Israel who was capable of doing mighty things. And so after he becomes king, the first thing he wants to do is to take this city and make it his Washington, D.C., his capital city for all of Israel. The problem is nobody had ever been able to take this city before. Nobody had been able to drive these Jebusites out that the city was, was difficult to take for a reason. It was built high up on several hills. It was guarded by uh, valleys on three sides. It had a strong stone wall it was considered to be impregnable in fact that's why the Jebusites taunt David and they say you're not going to take this city even blind and lame people are going to be able to keep you out of this city in other words, that's the only defenders that we're going to need to keep you out there's no way you're getting in here apparently though David knew a secret entrance into the city and that's why he says in verse 8 whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. By, by the way, when David talks about the blind and the lame here, he isn't being prejudiced against blind and lame people. He's taking the taunt of the Jebusites and he's throwing it back in their face. And he's referring to them when he talks about blind and lame people. And he's saying, you're not going to be able to come into my house or into this city again because we're about to drive you out of here. And he makes a little competition out of it and says, whoever is able to get up first into the city is going to be my commander. We find out in uh, the books of the Chronicler that it was Joab, his pesky nephew, who won the competition. And so probably much to David's chagrin, he remained the commander of David's army. But the way that he says to get into the city is by means of this water shaft. And outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, there is a spring called the Gihon Spring. It dates back to ancient days. And the Jebusites, when they were in possession of the city, had built a water shaft that brought the water from that spring underneath the walls of the city and up into the city. And it was an ingenious thing to do so that they would still have access to water, even if their city was under siege. I had a chance a few years ago to travel to Israel and to be able to walk through these tunnels that are called the Hezekiah tunnels, because a couple centuries after this, he added to these tunnels and Uh, brought this water even further into the city. And it was just an amazing experience to be able to walk underneath the city of Jerusalem in these tunnels that still have water in them as you wade through and, and to be able to sing worship songs to God underneath the city of Jerusalem. Just an experience that I'll never forget. But but one of the places as you walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, it intersects this even more ancient shaft. It's now called Warren Shaft. Uh, it was named after a man who discovered it in the 1900s or, or in the 19th century. And, and so you can look into this shaft. And as I looked into Warren's Shaft, I thought about this story right here. of How David said, whoever is able to climb up by the way of this shaft into the city, he's going to be my commander. And so one by one, David's men climbed up that treacherous path up the shaft into the city. It was a very dangerous, treacherous thing to do, but I'm sure just the thing that David's army rangers wanted to do. And as they got up into the city, they were able to take possession of it. We find out after David took possession of the city, how he built it out, how Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent him cedar logs. He would later send those Logs again and in greater number to David's son Solomon as he built the temple of the Lord. But I think the key verse is there in verse 10 where we read this. It says, David went on and became great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Why was David able to def- defeat the Jebusites. Why was he able to take possession of this city that nobody else had been able to take? Because the Lord who was with David all the way back when he was a shepherd boy in the fields was still with David to this day now that he was the king and Christian, the same God of hosts, is with us today. And he lives Within us, and so here's another life lesson for us: we should dare to do great things for God because our great God is with us. And if you know Christ, the Lord of Hosts is with you. The same God that was with David lives within you. He wants to use your life to do greater and greater and greater things for his glory if we will let him. And I've I've just been thinking this week about how much of our thinking would be far more biblical if we just thought more about this one principle that God is with us. How little we would fear and worry if we just remember that truth. God is with us. How much reason we would have to have joy emanating from our life when we remember that the God who is joy lives within us. How much should we have confidence and and expectation and hope as we carry out our mission in this world because we know that God goes with us. He's with you, Christian. And so like David, go on and become great. But remember what Jesus taught us. We become great by giving our lives away for him. And for others. So again, after David becomes king, God gives him the throne and he gives him this city that we call Jerusalem or Zion. And this is not a little thing in the history of the Bible either, because the truth of the matter is no city in the Bible is talked about as much as the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem shows up all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, when it's called by the name Salem, and there was this kind of mysterious character named Melchizedek, who was the priest king of the city of Salem, Jerusalem, that Abraham gave an offering to, if you remember that story. This is also the very same place, Mount Moriah, where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac until God provided another sacrifice. This is the place where Solomon would build his great temple to the Lord, and Herod's temple after that would would sit on the very same spot. This is the same city where one day the King, the Son of Glory, would ride into the city on the back of a donkey as the crowds cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the same city where right outside the city gates, Jesus Christ would hang on a cross for you and for me. The same place where the garden tomb is, where Jesus rose up from the dead. It's the same city, by the way, where the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is going to return. And then when we come to the last book of the Bible, to the second to the last chapter, Revelation 21, and we read about a city that is going to come down out of heaven to the earth. And the name of that city is the New Jerusalem. And so again, when this shepherd boy takes this city, it is a lot bigger deal than we think because it wasn't just about David, and yet what an honor for him. That this city we call Jerusalem or Mount Zion was first called the city of David. Look at what the next verse of Psalm 2 says about this. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. David may have been the first king that God set there, but Jesus will be the last. We're looking at three ways God establishes the reign of his king. First, God gives him the throne. Second, God gives him the city. And third, God will give his king the victory. The victory. Let's read the rest of the story starting in verse 17 of chapter 5. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Now the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord and he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as geezers so the philistines who were a constant enemy of israel thought to themselves well now david has been anointed king over all of israel now he is a real threat to us and we had better attack him early we better attack him before he's able to consolidate his power and so they come down to the valley of rephaim that word means giants the valley of the giants One person put it, David's about to be a giant slayer again for his people. But David knows that if this victory is going to come, it's only going to come because the Lord gives it. So the first thing he does in verse 19 is he inquires of the Lord. He asks the Lord, should we go down? Should we fight them? And if we do, are you going to deliver them into our hands? In other words, are we going to have the victory in this fight if we get into it? And the Lord says, yes, go get them. Now, now we have seen David do this before. We've seen David inquire of the Lord before. But what I love is that here he is after just having become king. And, and he didn't act like, well, you know, now I'm the king now. So I probably don't need to ask the Lord anymore. You know, I I pretty much got this on my own. I probably don't need to ask anybody what I need to do. I can handle this situation without any help from the Lord or anybody else. But that is not David's heartbeat. No, David gives us a great example here of always depending on the Lord and seeking him. And sure enough, just like God said, he gives him the victory. And in verse 20, David describes the victory as though God's power was like water breaking through a dam and knocking it over. But the Philistines... Uh, Kind of like the Washington Nationals were this week in the World Series. They just don't go away. They just keep fighting back. And so in verse 22, they show up again in the same valley to fight against Israel. So so it's the same enemy. They're in the very same valley. And yet David does not assume that the same battle plan is going to result in victory. No, he goes back to the Lord again. And he asked the Lord again. And this time the Lord gives him a different answer. Look at verse 23. Uh, the Lord said, You shall not go up, circle around behind them, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. So God said, No, this time I don't want you to meet him head on. I don't want you to circle around from behind. I want you to wait until you hear the sound of marching in the trees. And then it's time to attack. Again, David could have thought, well, I already know what to do here. I mean, this is the same enemy. We're in the exact same valley. I mean, why why do I need to go back to the Lord again? I just need to do the same thing that I did before. And the Lord is going to do the same thing that he did before. And I think it's easy for us in our life to make that very same mistake. To assume that the guidance that God gave us in the past for a different situation, or maybe even a situation that seems very similar to the one that we were in in the past, that now we, the Lord's just going to do the same thing. And sometimes we become lax in our seeking of the Lord and our seeking of the Lord's guidance because we presume upon Him that He's going to do the same thing that He did previously think a lot of ministries and a lot of churches do this. We think, well, you know, God blessed that event before. He blessed that event last year, so we probably should just do that every year until Jesus comes back, right? that that ministry was great in 1972. And so we just need to keep rocking that thing all the way until the return of the Lord. And, And there are some churches who are doing that, right? We're still doing the exact same thing in the exact same way, even though it's lost its effectiveness years ago, because all we're doing is making our plans and expecting God to bless them. And we've never stopped and asked the question, God, is this actually what you want us to do this year? To inquire of the Lord again. David gives us a great example here. God wants us to do this. He wants us to seek him anew, afresh, for what he wants to do right now in our life and in our family and in our church and our ministry. Friend, when's the last time you did that, the last time you sought God's direction for your life? Here's a life lesson we need to remember. We need to make sure that our faith is never in our methods, but it's always in the master. So David hears what God says and he circles around behind and then it happens. He hears the sound of marching in the tops of the tree. There's a lot of different views on that, but I believe that the sound of marching in the tops of the trees was the sound of angels marching out to war. Because at the end of verse 24, it says, then the Lord will go before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. In the first battle, the Lord broke out, and in this battle, the Lord goes out. And God gives his king the victory. And God doesn't just give King David the victory. God has given the victory to King Jesus also. And God gave King Jesus the victory when he raised him from the dead. And we already know where history is headed because God has told us. We already know that it ends with King Jesus coming back on a white war horse and defeating all of his enemies. History ends with Jesus Christ ruling and reigning forever and ever and all who know him living and reigning with him. That's that's how it ends. Here's how David puts the victory in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. David was the king of Israel, but Jesus is the king of the universe. And all the nations belong to him, all the nations are his inheritance. This, this is what drives us forward on mission, is it not? To remember what it says in Revelation, that one day there will be someone from every tribe and every tongue around the throne praising King Jesus forever. Why? Because the nations are his inheritance. But we also know, just as it says here in Psalm 2, that when the final trumpet has sounded and the Lord comes back with power, he will judge and he will defeat everyone who arrogantly rises up Against the Lord's anointed one and against his throne. And he will have the final victory. God will give him the throne, and God will give him the city, and God will give him the victory. I don't know how many of you have heard that uh, some time ago, uh, Kanye West uh, announced that he had uh, surrendered his life. Um, to the Lord Jesus. And if you know much about uh, Kanye, if you know much about his music or his past or uh, some of the things that he was involved with and and his career thus far, and, and even some of his lyrics, there's a past lyric in one of his songs where he literally says, I am a God. But now he has publicly said and confessed that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, he has said that he no longer wants to produce or perform any music in the future that is not gospel music. And not surprisingly, um, Christians have responded very differently to Kanye's profession of faith. And some have come out and and criticized him and um, have said that there's no way this is legit, that he's just probably playing evangelicals as fools so that he can sell more records. And others have celebrated it a lot, almost to the point that you you think they think that because Kanye has become a Christian, it kind of validates the rest of us becoming a Christian in some weird way. But I agree with what author Trevin Wax has said, that we need to guard ourselves against both of those responses. That we should not say that there is no way that Kanye can be saved when we read in our Bible that God took a man named Saul and turned him into Paul. But also... We need to guard against holding up a brand new Christian as though he is now the authority on everything that the Bible teaches. We should assume that as a new Christian, just like all of us, he's going to make some mistakes. He's going to say some things that are wrong. And so we should probably do for him like he's asked Christians to do for him, and that's to pray for him. To pray that God would protect him, that he would grow, that that if indeed his faith is genuine, that he would grow in that faith. And from the same things I've seen from him, the things I've heard from him even this past week, I have no reason to doubt that his profession is sincere. But, but here is something that's really cool, and I'm not sure if you saw this last week, but Kanye's latest album is entitled, Jesus is King. And that album dropped just a little over a week ago, and he bought up some advertising space in Times Square in New York City. I don't know how many of y'all saw this, but you look on this picture right up, Halfway up that building, you can see the emblem from the album and the words, Jesus is King. And so because Kanye decided to title his album, Jesus is King, this past week, the words, Jesus is King, were written over New York City. And you know, those words are true because Jesus is King over New York City. Jesus is King over Melbourne because Jesus is King over all the world. Here's what David tells us to do because of that at the very end of Psalm 2. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You know, in ancient times, people would often show their allegiance and their homage to a king by by bowing down and kissing their ring or kissing their hand. And, you know, I was thinking about that even this morning that when we do that, when we kiss the sun, as Psalm 2 says, and we bow down and we kiss the hand of Jesus, we're kissing a hand that has nail prints in it. We're kissing a hand that was nailed to a tree out of love for you and love for me, where he paid the price for our sins. And so while, yes, we should bow our knee to Jesus because he is the king, and he's the king whether we acknowledge him to be the king or not. We should bow our knee to Jesus because if we don't bow our knee to the true king of the universe, one day, as we read in Psalm 2, he will come to judge all heaven and all earth. But in the end, What draws us to God, what draws us to bow our knee to King Jesus is the love and the grace of God that this King would love you and love me so much that he would go to the cross and die for us. And that's why the last line of that psalm is so incredible. Blessed are those who trust in him. How eternally blessed we are and will be if we have trusted in this son, in this king. I wanna ask you to stand with me if you would. I'm gonna ask Jake just to come and just to begin to play over us here in just a moment. I just wanna invite you if you're here and God is speaking to your heart and you know I need to make that step. I need to bow my knee to King Jesus. I want to invite you to come as soon as we begin to sing. Speak with me or one of the other pastors that you're going to see standing here at the head of each of these aisles. Just come and receive King Jesus into your life and the grace and the forgiveness and the love that he wants to give you. You come as we sing together.